0: Please turn your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 5. It's a joy to be back with you this morning. I think the only thing uh, worse than preaching is not preaching, and so it's a a great joy to be able to to open God's Word with you this morning. We're in the middle of a section of, of Luke in which we've seen that we are sinners in need of a Savior and that Jesus Christ is that Savior, and this morning... We begin to look at a story of Jesus and his calling of of Levi. And if you would stand with me as we read verses 27 through 32 together. Luke writes, After this, he, that is Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners, to repentance. May God encourage us and strengthen us through his word this morning. You may be seated. And Father, we recognize this morning that we are sinners in need of of healing. We thank you for the redemptive work you've done in our lives, how you've reconciled us to you through your son Jesus and We pray this morning that as we look at this story of your calling of Levi, we also would have a passion to reach those who are spiritually sick. And we pray this for your glory in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Even before the devastating earthquake in January of this year, the the people of Haiti have suffered terribly. Haiti is one of the the poorest countries in the Western Hemisphere. It is the poorest country in the Americas. Eighty percent of its people live in poverty. 225,000 children live in a situation that is uh, practically slavery. They serve as household servants in exchange for shelter and food. For those of you who are more cynical among us, it should not surprise you to find out that even though this is a country In immense poverty, those who are at the the top levels of government often live very lavish lifestyles. From 1956 until 1971, Francois Papadoc Duvier was president-slash-dictator. In 1971, he turned over control of the government to his son, Jean-Claude Babydoc, Duvier. And Baby Doc continued the policies of his father, living a very lavish, extravagant lifestyle at the expense of his people. In 1980, Baby Doc was married, and his wedding ceremony made into the Guinness Book of World Records as the world's most expensive wedding. An extravaganza, a three million dollar extravaganza in a country that was suffering terrible poverty. His wife continued his rather terrible financial practices as she would go on shopping trips to Manhattan, buy dozens of pairs of $500 shoes. She had $50,000 worth of flowers shipped monthly from Miami to Haiti. She had an entire vault that served as a closet that was refrigerated in which she stored her fur coats. It's estimated that the Duviers in a 10-year period in one decade took over half a billion dollars worth of funds from the people of Haiti. It's reprehensible, right? People who had been entrusted with the care of the people in their country were taking advantage of them. they have been entrusted to make sure that people had the resources necessary for life And instead, instead we're turning a blind eye to their needs and living in extravagance. You and I have been given a treasure of infinite value. We have been given Jesus Christ. And we have been charged by God, entrusted by God with the message, the good news of Jesus Christ. That ministry of reconciliation has been entrusted to us so that you and I can take the good news of Jesus Christ to those who are spiritually impoverished and share that message with them. We call this sometimes evangelism. And I want to be careful how we use that term, because sometimes when we use the term evangelism, we think this. We think, okay, evangelism is is going and handing someone a tract, or evangelism is going through four points of some sort of message with a person. And certainly it's important to make sure that the the content of the message of Jesus Christ is communicated to someone when you're doing evangelism. In fact, I, I would say, unless there are certain truths you communicate to a person about Jesus Christ You haven't practiced evangelism, but what I want to suggest to you this morning is that evangelism goes far deeper than just the communication of truths about Jesus Christ. It is certainly not less than that, but it is also something more. And what I believe as I look at the areas in which our young church needs to grow. I believe that one of those areas is in the ministry of evangelism. I believe that there is more that we as believers can do to communicate the person of Jesus Christ to those around us. And it goes, as I've suggested, far deeper than just communicating some truths about Jesus, but imparting our very lives to those who are spiritually impoverished, who are spiritually sick. In fact, as we begin our time of looking at Luke chapter 5 together, what I want you to do is just kind of ask yourselves some questions. Are there people in my life who need the life-changing message of Jesus Christ? Are there people in my life who are spiritually impoverished, who are spiritually sick, who need the healing grace of Jesus Christ in their lives? My guess is that there are. We know that there are people in our lives, in our community, who need the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that leads to the next question. If there are people in my life, in my sphere of influence, who need the gospel of Jesus Christ, why aren't they receiving it? The possibility is that we have turned a blind eye to their needs. My suggestion is, so, is that sometimes the reason that the people in our lives aren't responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ is because we've ignored their needs, instead are kind of lavishing, living extravagant lives of grace, and failing to take the treasure that God has given us to those who need it most. Perhaps you've some of you know this cartoon character Scrooge McDuck. Scrooge McDuck is this uh, duck uh, who's very wealthy, kind of a Disney creation. And he has this giant building called his money bin. And in this giant money bin, he has all his money and, and these little gold coins. And he, 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 I always loved this imagery as a kid because I thought it would be so cool to do. You know what he does in that money? He'll jump in that gold coins and just kind of swim around. I always wanted to do that. As believers, sometimes the church becomes this giant money bin. And we swim around in the grace that God has given us, and we fail to realize God has bestowed his grace upon us as a church so that we bestow it upon those who are in desperate need of it. Here's what I want to kind of communicate to you as we look at these verses in chapter 5, verses 27 through 32 of the Gospel of Luke. What I want you to to see is this. Those sinners who need to repent are introduced to Christ by sinners who have been redeemed. Sinners who need to repent are going to be introduced to Christ by sinners who've been redeemed and and reconciled to God. That's the ministry God has given to us, and I want us to have a passion for that this morning. Let's look at the story of Levi. As we look at the story of Levi, or as he's also called and Some accounts later in chapter 6, Matthew, this is Levi, Matthew. As we look at his story, we're going to look at four phases of his life. And then we're going to see the reaction of of Jesus and the Pharisees to his conversion. And then at at the end of our time, or the last half of our time together, or third of our time together, whatever it works out to be, I want us to think about some applications for you and I as we think about our ministry of healing the spiritually sick. Let's look at Levi's story. The first phase we see of his life begins in verse 27. It says, after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. This first phase of of Levi's life here is, is Levi the reprobate, Levi the sinner. Some of you may think that you hate the IRS or the tax collector. Some of you may think that you hate paying taxes. Let me tell you this, you've got nothing On the first century Jew. (laughs) They really hated tax collectors. The tax collection system was set up something like this. There were kind of two categories of paying taxes. Uh, Some taxes were pretty fixed amounts. They'd be things like land taxes and income tax and just a a census tax, a tax placed upon upon an individual. Those taxes were fixed amounts. Another category of taxes were more fluctuating And these were taxes on goods and services. There were toll roads that they would have to pay taxes upon. And the people who were in charge of collecting these taxes often became very, very wealthy. And here's why. They were tasked with charging these taxes and there was a certain amount they had to give to the roman government and other government officials sometimes there'd be a tax that they paid to their supervisor but these people who collected these taxes also could become very wealthy on just collecting these taxes they would charge more than they were than they had to in order to become very wealthy they could also do this if they were charging a person a certain amount to walk on a road or to to engage in commerce And the person said, I can't pay that. The tax collector could say, fine, I'm going to loan you the money at such and such a rate, and then you're going to pay me back. So they're practicing usury. Tax collectors were thieves. Tax collectors were cheats. Tax collectors were viewed in the Jewish culture, not only as cheats, but as traitors. Because they were not only defrauding the Jewish people of their money, but they were enabling the hated Roman government. In first century Judaism, if you were a tax collector, you were not allowed to testify in court because it was assumed you were a liar. In fact, you weren't allowed to be a part of the synagogue. You couldn't worship with the people of God. That was the first century Jewish tax collector. A cheat, a fraud, a robber. And in chapter 5 of Luke, in verse 27, Levi, the tax collector, is engaged in this process of collecting taxes. He's in Capernaum, so this would probably be a very lucrative spot. It's the largest town there on the sea. It's along a trade route. And so Levi would be able to charge fishermen, be able to charge people traveling, perhaps. Levi is at the table. Perhaps there's some gold coins and some of his records there. Levi is engaged in the activity that is so reprehensible to the Jewish person. And as he's engaged in that activity, at that moment, a very remarkable event happens. Jesus comes to Levi and says, in our translations, what works out to two words, follow me. And at that moment that Jesus utters those two words, a new phase in Levi's life begins. He goes from being Levi the reprobate, the sinner, the tax collector, to becoming Levi the repentant. It's interesting how simple Jesus' words are here. Follow me. And verse 28 says this, leaving everything... Levi arose and followed him. Think about the things that are at that table. There's the gold coins, his records. He's engaged in the practice. Jesus says, follow me. And we don't know what sort of interactions Jesus had with Levi beforehand. But at that moment, Levi gets up, leaves everything, and follows Jesus. That's repentance. Remember, we've, we've talked about repentance before in the Gospel of Luke. We've said that repentance is changing one's mind and feelings and intentions regarding sin. So, for example, if I'm a, I'm a student in school and, and there's this sin of gossip that I'm engaging in, I'm talking to my friends about this other girl in the class, and I'm, I'm talking about what a, a terrible person she is, and I, I want to make myself look good, I'm engaging in gossip, I'm engaging in this sin, and I decide to repent what happens? Well, first of all, I change my mind concerning that sin. I take this activity that I was engaged in that used to seem okay, and as I come to God's Word, and it talks about how my my speech needs to be edifying, talks about my role in in regards to other people's lives, and I see this sin, and I, I change my mind about it. I say, this thing that I was engaged in that I used to think was okay, I understand this isn't okay anymore. And I not only change my mind about it intellectually, I changed my feelings toward it. This activity used to bring me joy. I used to to find it a a good activity, an enjoyable activity to engage in. Now I change my my feelings about it. I'm not so comfortable with it anymore. This isn't something I I want to be doing. And so I, I change my feelings about it, and then I change my intentions regarding that sin. This sin that I thought was okay, that I enjoyed, I enjoyed participating in, and I intended to continue participating in. Now I say I am no longer, my intent at least, is no longer to engage in this sin i'm turning from it remember we talked about that before wayne grudem says this about repentance he says repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin a renouncing of it and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to christ and we talked about before how faith is always accompanied by repentance as a person places their faith in Jesus Christ, it's always accompanied by a turning from sin. Repentance and faith aren't the exact same act, but they always occur concurrently. They're separate, but they always one always requires the other. You can't place your faith in Jesus without turning from your sin. You can't turn from your sin without placing your faith in Jesus. During the Civil War, The South produced its own currency, the Confederate dollar. And at the beginning of the war, you were able to engage in commerce in the South using the Confederate dollar. But what happened as the war went on? As the war went on, these Confederate dollars were very easy to counterfeit, and they became worth less and less. And as the war turned very badly for the South, there was less confidence in that currency. So what happened, the value that a person placed upon the Confederate dollar became less and less. In fact, at one point, you would have had to bring in ten wagon, full, uh, wagon uh, loads full of the Confederate dollar in order to rent one wagon. Okay. People were lining their clothing with Confederate dollars just to kind of keep warm because they were worthless to engage in commerce with. What happened? the value that a person placed upon that Confederate dollar decreased. And so their actions in regards to that dollar changed. That's what happens with repentance. A person begins to value Jesus Christ. And as they value Jesus Christ, the value of other things decreases, and it changes their actions. The person who's been engaging in gossip used to value their own prestige, and they used to value making other people look bad. They begin to value Jesus Christ more, and suddenly those other things have less value, and they're unwilling to engage in that activity. A husband who's been living a very selfish lifestyle, exalting himself and, and meeting his own needs, uh, and as he as he begins to value Jesus Christ, his, his own value diminishes. And his own value diminishes, the wife... the the value that he places upon his wife, increases. That's repentance. What happens with Levi? Levi has spent his entire life, adult life to this point, engaging in this activity of collecting these gold coins. These coins that are at his table have an infinite value to him. He has been willing to suffer the reproach of family. He's been willing to be kicked out of the religious community. All those things he viewed as as worthless compared to piling up this money for himself. And in one moment, Jesus Christ comes to him and says, follow me. And Levi does this calculation, value value. Of coins had been like this, value of Jesus is exalted. The value of the things he's been pursuing plummets. And he trades one reproach for another. Before he has suffered the reproach of men for his love of money. Now as he loves Jesus Christ and places his value as infinite, he's willing to suffer the reproach of men for following Jesus Christ. We'll see that throughout his life. Levi repents. Levi, the reprobate, turns into Levi, the repentant. He leaves everything, gets up from the table, and follows Jesus. And thus begins the third phase in Levi's life. He becomes Levi, the rejoicer. It's interesting. He's just left a very lucrative position. He now no longer has a job. And perhaps the first thing that I would do in that circumstance is say, Jesus, I'm going to follow you, uh, but first I'm looking for a job. Or I might say, Okay, I'm, I'm going to follow you, Jesus, but boy, I have got some financial obligations now. Levi rejoices. What does Levi? He throws a party. He celebrates. You can imagine the invitations that go out. He, he comes up to a person. He says, hey, I, another tax collector. Says, I, I've left my job. That's great. What are you doing? I'm following Jesus. What does that pay? Nothing. How are you feeling about it? Ecstatic. He's rejoicing that he's found Jesus Christ. Again, that's a mark of true repentance. The value of Jesus has been exalted. The value of everything else has exalted plummeted and now he's throwing a party to celebrate finding jesus christ and obtaining him jesus christ value for levi is infinite he reads rejoicing which leads us to the last phase of levi's life that we see here in luke chapter 5 this passage in luke chapter 5 levi reaches out he's been a reprobate he becomes repentant he rejoices then he reaches others Says in verse 29, he makes this great feast in his house. There's a large company of, of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. Uh, Levi desires to rejoice, and in his rejoicing, he cannot help but reach others that are within his sphere of influence, his acquaintances. These tax collectors and other sinners who have been engaged in some of the same activities that Levi has been engaged in, now Levi is reaching and introducing them to Jesus Christ. As you think about a meal, don't let Da Vinci's painting of the Last Supper fool you (laughs) or cause you to not really understand what happens here in a first-century meal. What's happening is they're reclining on pillows. And in first-century Judaism, to share a meal with someone was not just a simple, polite thing to do. What it indicated was well, first of all, in this setting, it indicated celebration. It was a festive activity. As one commentator puts it, not only did it mean celebration, but shared meals symbolized shared lives. And as Levi is there holding this great party in his house for Jesus. What he's wanting to do is share Jesus with these other people whom he knows need Jesus. He wants them to to understand the value of this one whom he's decided to follow as well. Levi has gone from being a reprobate through his repentance to rejoicing, and that rejoicing cannot help but cause him to reach others with the good news of Jesus Christ what's the response of others? We see the response of others in verse 30. As Jesus is engaged and, and reclined at the table with these other people and engaged in this fellowship, afterwards the Pharisees, who somehow become aware of this, they grumble to the disciples, the Pharisees and their scribes. And they say this, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Why would you share your lives with these people who are enmeshed in, this, in these sinful lifestyles? Why on earth would you associate with them? And Jesus responds thusly in verse 31 and 32. Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, a people who believe that sarcasm is always wrong I think I have a tough time with this passage. Jesus is engaging in a little bit of godly sarcasm. In fact, someday I, I want to do a sermon called A Theology of Sarcasm, uh, but not today. Jesus is, is kind of giving a little dig. Look, the people who are well don't need a physician. It's the people who are sick. The implication is the Pharisees who believe that they're well are actually also part of this group who are sick people. He says, thusly, I've not come to call the righteous. That's a little sarcastic. We know the Pharisees aren't righteous. But sinners to repentance. Oh, if I was going to call the righteous, I'd be hanging out with you guys. But instead, I'm calling the sinners to repentance. Jesus, in this statement, identifies his mission. Jesus' mission is, is to call those who are sinners, those who are spiritually sick, to repentance, to heal them. Don't let the Pharisees be a wet blanket on this party. As we close the scene here and begin to talk about the application, what I want you to see is not these Pharisees who are grumbling and complaining and whining. I want you to see Levi. Levi has been part of the dredges of society. He's been an outcast. He has been such an outcast that he can't even participate in the religious life of Israel. Now, Levi is the repentant, and he's here at this party rejoicing that he has found Jesus, and his joy is so infectious that other people have joined in it. And perhaps a tax collector is there, and as he looks at Levi sitting next to Jesus, he sees his joy and says, I want that as well. Brothers and sisters at Bethany Community Church, this is my exhortation to you. I want us to have such a joy in Jesus that it is infectious. And as Jesus' mission is to call sinners to repentance... Let that be our mission as well. Now, don't see yourself as Jesus in this story. You're not. You and I are are Levi. (laughs) We are the sinners who have been on the outcast, the outside of relationship with God. We have been reconciled, redeemed, brought into relationship with God through faith in Jesus, and now our task is to invite others to see Jesus as well. Let me give you four applications here that help us as we think about healing the spiritually sick. First, my encouragement to you is this. Repent of your self-righteousness. Repent of your self-righteousness. Romans chapter 9, Paul's talking about the situations in which the Jews found themselves. In Romans chapter 9, verse 31, he says, Israel pursued a law that would lead to righteousness. Why did they not succeed? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as as if it were based on works. The Pharisees here are pursuing a righteousness. and Why did they not succeed? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but works. They believed that they were righteous enough in and of themselves to obtain the righteousness that they needed. That they could do enough works on their own in order to obtain God's righteousness. It's a ridiculous notion, right? Uh, Jerry Bridges uh, was listening to a a DVD that uh, he gave this last week on holiness, and he suggests that one of the greatest sins in the church is self-righteousness. Let me give you kind of four signs here that you're engaging in self-righteousness or you're practicing self-righteousness. One sign that you're self-righteous is you're minimizing your own sin and your own lack of worth. You're minimizing your own sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says this. He says, this is 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. He says, "...for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong." God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That is a ridiculous and blasphemous image, isn't it? To appear before God and say, God, I made it, didn't I? Self-righteousness minimizes our own sin and our own lack of worth. Another thing that self-righteousness does is it places great confidence in our own works. And thirdly, it fixates on the sins of others. So self-righteousness, first of all, minimizes our own sin. It places great confidence in the things that we've done. And thirdly, it causes us to fixate on the sins of others. We're in Luke chapter 5. Turn over a few chapters to Luke Chapter 18, Jesus gives this parable. It says in verse Luke 18, verse 9, it says, He also told this parable to some who trusted themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Verse 10, he says, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or or." Even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Verse 13, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The self-righteousness it causes us to place great confidence in ourselves, to minimize the sin in our life, to con- place great confidence in our own works, and to be fixated upon the sins of others. You want to know how self-righteous you are? How aware of the sin of others are you? person, or you go and you tell another person, boy, can't believe so-and-so. They're gossiping about me. (laughs) They're talking about me behind my back. Can you believe that they're doing that (laughs) as you do it? (laughs) It's very interesting. How do you view the sin of other people? Do you view other people as somehow more inherently evil than you are? Or even, as Galatians says, even as you see the sin of others, is there a great fear within you, as you realize that that's the condition of your heart apart from God's work in it as well? One last thing about self-righteousness: fourth characteristic here. Self-righteousness minimizes the glory of God. Again, Jerry Bridges was talking about Isaiah chapter six this, this last week as I was listening to him, and t- turn to Isaiah chapter six, if you would. This is Isaiah's calling. And I think Jerry Bridges makes a very interesting observation here. He's seeing the, the glory of God. says there are these angels, and one calls to another, verse 3, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Verse 5, And I said, this is Isaiah, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of, of people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar indicating God's forgiveness and God dealing with Isaiah's sin. Verse 7, and he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips and your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And then after verse 7, Isaiah is called to engage in ministry. He says, verse verse 8, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Isaiah said, here I am, send me. And Jerry Bridges, as he's talking about this passage, makes a very interesting point. He says, what if, what if Isaiah, before he had seen the glory of God, had been asked to, to go, to be sent? Uh, Isaiah might have very presumptuously said, yeah, I, I can do that. What, though, if he had been asked to go on God's mission for him? In verse 5, right after seeing God's glory. He would have said, I can't do it. I'm this man of unclean lips. So what had to happen? God had to show him his own glory and then show him how he was going to deal with his sin. And then Isaiah was prepared for the ministry that God had for him. If you think about healing the spiritually sick, the first thing that you and I must do is repent of our own self-righteousness to understand the great joy that comes from God's forgiveness that cannot come from within ourselves. Secondly, let's think about healing the spiritually sick. I encourage you to do this. Love Jesus. Love Jesus. Levi delights in the presence of Jesus. He is so excited about Jesus. His repentance is so thorough. Those coins that seem to have some value before Jesus had zero value afterwards. He's willing to, to leave them on the table. This past week, I was at a, a pastor's retreat with the different pastors from the Bethany Fellowship of Churches, and I had the great joy agony to go uh, jogging with Pastor Art Georges from Living Hope Community Church, and, and Ben Davidson jogged with us as well. Pastor Art Georges is a maniac, um, and I say that in love. He loves running. He, lo- I mean, he loves it. He takes great joy in it. Uh, this course that we were running had these just extremely steep hills, and and they then they'd be followed by these 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 uh, where you go up and then you go down, and as you're going down, you think I gotta go back up this sometime, and so there's just this great agony that I'm feeling as I'm running this, and. We're a couple miles into it, I think, man, how much longer is this gonna go? And as I as I think that thought in my head, a uh, Pastor Art's on the other side of me running, and he goes, Isn't this great? I love it. I said, You're sick, man. <laughs> he loves it. He delights in it. It doesn't take a lot of work to convince Pastor Art to go running. Takes great joy in it. Delights in it. You're enthusiastic about the things you love. And if you're going to accurately portray Jesus Christ to those who are spiritually sick, you must love Jesus. Don't give people something less than a glorious Jesus. Don't be apologetic as you present the infinite value and worth of Jesus. Love Jesus. Jesus tells Levi to follow him, and he does it with joy. He throws a party. That joy that you have in Jesus must be communicated to those who are spiritually sick that are in need of Jesus Christ. In the Gospels, as people respond to Jesus, you see those who respond in obedience, even when they're called to do tough things, responding with great joy. I think also of Acts chapter 3. In Acts chapter 3, that uh, Peter and John are going up to the temple to pray. They see this man who's been lame from birth. He's being carried out, and he's, he's asking for money. Peter and James, what do they tell him? They said, look, uh, Peter says, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. He gives them Jesus. <laughs> And the, and the beggar sta- sa- stands up and says, I wanted money. No. <laughs> he weeps. It's with great joy that he praises God. He delights in Jesus. If your delight is not in Jesus, you're going to have a tough time convincing anyone <laughs> that he's worth the cost of following him. Love Jesus. Thirdly, Engage the spiritually sick. Engage the spiritually sick. Where are Levi and Jesus? Levi and Jesus didn't go around door to door with the tax collectors and hand them a pamphlet or a tract. I'm not saying those things are bad to do. But I'm saying this. They're engaging those people who most desperately needed Jesus and were aware of their need. Sometimes I think we have a bad theology of our home, our social life, and we have a bad theology of the purpose of the church. Sometimes we think, man, these people who are on the the fringes of society who desperately need Jesus, I'm going to pick them up and I'm going to bring them to church, and and there they'll, they'll 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 find Jesus. And and you know what? May God give us the grace to every person that comes in the walls of these church. May we show them the love of Christ. And so I, I absolutely I hope that happens. But frankly. It's difficult to do that because <laughs> you're taking a person who hasn't known Jesus and, and putting them in a room full of a bunch of people who are engaged in worship, and and th- it's it's, it's going to be very difficult for them. That's our bad theology of church sometimes and the purpose of church. The purpose of church is for the saints to engage in worship. Now here's where our theology of our home life and our social life is poor. <laughs> Sometimes we think the purpose of our home life and our social life is to just kind of swim in the grace of God and, and keep it to ourselves and, and invite over other Christians and, and just kind of uh, talk about how wonderful Jesus is to other people who already know how wonderful he is. That's not the purpose of your social life. God calls us to engage the spiritually sick. There should be people in your sphere of influence that you're spending time with on a, on a weekly, on a monthly basis who don't know Jesus, who don't understand his worth, and you are engaged in ministry to them, not at arm's length, but deep, intimate relationship. There is a a meal that Jesus engages in. He's reclining at the table. It's it's shared lives. If there are people who are at the fringes of society, in our county, in our city, and there are, and you don't know any of them, (laughs) there's a problem. The problem may be that you don't care about them. If you don't care about them, shame on you. Jesus Christ calls us as repentant sinners to call other sinners to repentance. We must, we must, we must, as a church, as individuals within the church, engage the spiritually sick. That brings us To the fourth point here we must call sinners to repent may our may our hospitality be scandalous (laughs) may other people look at the people whose lives that we're sharing our life with and be a little bit shocked by that romans 15 7 uh, paul says welcome one another as christ has welcomed us for the glory of god so may you do that may you practice scandalous hospitality But at the same time, remember that your purpose is to call others to holiness. I don't want to brag. I do. Um, But I'm not going to. As far as I know, I'm the only pastor in central Illinois who's ever been kicked out of a bar. Now, uh, there's more to the story than that, of course. I was, uh, the, the, the short version of the story is that at one point I was uh, following a person whom I'd been ministering to into the bar, pleading with someone not to give them an alcoholic beverage, and they were asking me to leave. <laughs> so sometimes as Christians talk about, well, I want to meet sinners where they're at, I want to engage in certain activity. Notice, Jesus didn't go around tax collecting with Levi. <laughs> he didn't sit down at the table with him and said, hey, let's collect some taxes together, because I want to kind of bond with you. Levi is engaged, and as Levi engages others who are spiritually sick, he's doing it within the context of activities in which fellowship can take place. There are going to be certain activities that a person engages in that I'm not going to be very fun in those activities because I'm going to be this constant, hey, this is a terrible idea. (laughs) Engage the spiritually sick. But remember, our purpose is to call sinners to repentance. This is a very delicate balance. But our goal is not just friendship, but holiness. You see, what happens is those of us who are believers understand that those who uh, need to repent are in grave physical danger. Think of Psalm chapter 1 and the danger that exists for a person who's not repented of their sins. Psalm chapter one talks about blessed are those Psalm chapter one talks about blessed are, are those who are not in, engaging in, in these certain types of sinful activities, but instead they delight in the law of the Lord. Verse 3, they're like trees that are planted by streams of water. But verse 4 says, the, the wicked are not so. The wicked are like chaff that the wind drives away. The wicked will not stand in the judgments, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. And so as we engage in relationship with those who are spiritually sick, we understand that they have a grave need for repentance, for the gospel of Jesus Christ to penetrate their hearts so they can respond in faith to him. Jesus engages in their lives, he shares his life with them, but as he does so, he's constantly calling them to repentance. I want you to prepare your hearts with me now to partake of communion together. Paul tells us that as we partake of communion, one of the things that we're doing is proclaiming the death of Jesus Christ. What I want us to do is not only proclaim the death of Jesus Christ here in our our church, but as you think about God's call in your life to proclaim his death and resurrection until he returns, I want you to ask God in in your own heart, God, who are the spiritually sick in my world? Who are you calling me to reach with your gospel? Who are the people who don't know you that you've placed me in a unique position to proclaim you to? Here's a a question. What if Levi's friends had been relying upon you to introduce them to Jesus? How effective would you have been at that? Go ahead and bow your heads with me ask God. God, first of all, this, these first moments of prayer to God, I encourage you to do this. Ask God, God, where do I need to repent of my own self-righteousness? God, in what areas have I been so convinced of my own holiness, of my, my own intrinsic worth, that I failed to see my, my need for you? How have I failed to understand your holiness and my lack of reaching that level of holiness. Just take a moment and ask God to help you in the area of repenting of self-righteousness. Now I'd encourage you to ask God to give you a greater love for Jesus, for you to understand his value and his worth at at a deeper level. To delight in him. To love him more fully. And now, ask God to help you as you think about how to engage those who are spiritually sick. To help Show them the physician. It's not those who well, who are well who need a doctor, but those who are ill. And so ask God to give you the grace to know those in your life who are in need of him and how you can call them to repentance. Ask God to expand your vision of those who are in your life, that he would cause you to seek out relationships with those don't know him. Ask God to prepare our hearts now as we eat the bread and we drink the cup as we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We aren't proclaiming it just to ourselves, although we are proclaiming the gospel, of course, to ourselves as well, but we're proclaiming it to others as well. And Father, we pray that as we prepare to take your supper, prepare to remember the sacrifice that you made, God help us to value you value your son in such a way that we would communicate your worth to others we pray this in your son jesus's name amen as we uh, prepare to to take of the lord's supper the men will begin passing that out the lord's supper is open to all who have placed their faith in jesus christ you need not be a member of our church in order to partake of the lord's supper together you need only have recognize your need for a savior and place your faith in jesus christ as your savior in order to partake of the lord's supper together there's kind of two layers of our communion because of the unique setting in which god has allowed us to partake of the lord's supper together the first layer contains the 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 bread or the, the wafer and the second layer contains uh, the, the the wine the juice and so we encourage you to prepare your hearts as we partake of the lord's supper together proclaiming Him now. and and committing before the Lord to proclaim him outside of these walls, to invest in the lives of, of other people. Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he had given thanks, took the bread and broke it, saying, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. If you prepare to take the cup with me. the Same way, also, he took the cup after supper. Said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Paul tells us, So we proclaim the death of our Lord until he returns. May we proclaim his death again, not just to one another. May we not just swim in the lavishness of God's grace without also sharing that grace, that truth, with those who are so desperately in need of it let's pray father we thank you for your son jesus that you found us when we were without hope restored hope to us through faith in your son jesus and god help us to boldly proclaim that hope to others we pray this for your glory in the name of your son jesus amen